Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome back from your weekends. Um, I am working right now on a show that will run Wednesday night that will be an all call, mainly all phone calls show about impeachment. We're also working on another impeachment-related show that we're not quite ready to talk about yet, but but will run regularly through this period. Uh, But for that reason, we thought it was important to notice the things that go on in the rest of the world uh, on today's show and to not talk about impeachment at all. And there are quite a few things worth talking about. Later on the show, we're actually going to make a uh, a trip into the world of NFL football where there are two stories that we're interested in, one involving a player, Miles Garrett, who removed his helmet and hit another player in the head with his uh, helmet. Uh, and uh, No, actually, he removed that player's helmet, and uh, Mason Rudolph, uh, and struck him in the head. And also, of course, the much-followed workout by uh, Colin Kaepernick as he sort of re-auditions for a possible or perhaps mythical uh, return to the NFL. Uh, at the end, we'll tell you a story of a stolen Stradivarius. It happened to uh, belong to Nina Totenberg's father. Uh, all of that is to come. Uh, but we're going to begin with a very sad uh, story, uh, one that hurts to talk about, one that uh, you've been aware of at some level for a while, but maybe not aware of the way in which it ties in to a family you also probably know pretty well, especially if you listen to this radio station. Uh, I'm talking about the two crashes uh, of Boeing planes. Uh, one of them took place uh, in October of, two th- of 2018, and then the next one in March of 2019. The first one was a, a crash into the Java Sea by a jet licensed to Lion Air. And then it was followed in March of 2019 by the crash of an Ethiopian Airlines jet. Um, you know that story. You know the um, attempt to understand better what happened. Was it uh, the result of bad airmanship, as there's, there's actually a term uh, for a certain level of skill and understanding that ideally a pilot would have, uh, is, is the problem more with the engineering and software of Boeing? Uh, probably you've heard a little bit of that debate anyway. You might have read some coverage. But unless you know the Nader family very well, the family of Ralph Nader, uh, you might not understand how much it touched them and how much it activated. Not that the, this particular family needs a lot of activation to get involved as activists, but how much it activated their sensibilities, um, how much this, this story will be very, very deeply affected by the fact that this particular family, which has a proven track record and a knowledge and an understanding and a thirst for civic improvement and civic activism, uh, how much this story will be conditioned historically by that. But the person who's done the best job of explaining that is our guest, Alec McGillis, who covers politics and government for ProPublica. His work has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times Magazine, among other publications. He's, among other publications. He's also the author of The Cynic, a biography of Senator Mitch McConnell. But it is his article in The New Yorker, uh, it's called The Case Against Boeing, uh, that we're talking about today. So, First of all, Alec McGillis, welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. 
Um, let's just begin maybe uh, not with the crash, but with the family. So uh, one of the young people who died in the Ethiopian crash uh, was, uh, I think, the grandniece uh, of Ralph Nader. But she was a lot more than just Ralph Nader's grandniece. Uh, tell us about this young woman. Who, who was she? Uh, her name is uh, Samia Stumo, and she's, uh, she's a member of this remarkable family that um, they go back to, to Winstead, Connecticut, which is where I met them when I was working at the Winstead Journal, a weekly paper in Winstead. Um, Winstead is, of course, the, the hometown of Ralph Nader, and his, his niece, um, Nadia Milleron, um, settled in Winstead with her young family back in the 90s. Um, she's married, she married a, um, an Iowa farm boy that she met at law school in Iowa, and they started to have a, a family. They had um, three kids. Um, sadly, one of their youngest of those three um, died of cancer at age two, and they then had a, a fourth. Um, so there were there were three kids growing up. Uh, they moved to a farm and uh, just across the border in Berkshire County in Massachusetts, um, and and uh, grew up in this farm. The, the kids had a very unusual kind of upbringing. They you know had chores on the farm. Samia um, was. At, at, at very young age of eight or nine, was in charge of watering, bringing water to the pigs on an old jeep. Um, she liked to ride around on the pigs when she was done bringing the water out. She was a uh, very, very bright young woman. She went to an early college program when she was 14, finally eventually graduated from UMass and got a full-ride scholarship from the uh, government of Denmark to the University of Copenhagen to get a master's of public health there. And she was on her very first flight for her first job after getting her master's, going to East Africa to set up some offices for a nonprofit that does healthcare access work. Um, and she was on that Ethiopian Airlines jet. So your story really covers um, at least three fronts of the story. One of them is what happened at Boeing. One of them is what happened to the FAA. And the other one is this family, this family who were no strangers to this subject matter. I always feel as though anything that comes up in the public discourse just about is something that Ralph Nader was thinking about 10 years before or more. So, for example, in the area of aviation, Ralph Nader was lobbying for the hardening off of cockpit pit doors, of increased security for cockpit doors in the 1980s, two decades before 9-11. Uh, it's almost impossible to pick uh, an area of human endeavor that can benefit from better government regulation, from better business regulation of itself uh, that that the Nader family hasn't addressed at some point. And it seems as though that also uh, Alec Pat was passed down uh, a generation or so. I, I one of the fascinating things to me uh, that came up in your article is that, that Michael Stumo, uh, Samia's father, um, had the this kind of grassroots organization that was for farmers and other kinds of workers. But there was also a guy from Boeing in that organization way before all this unfolded. Exactly. No, it was, it was really quite a connection. The, it was a, Michael runs a group called the Coalition for Prosperous America, and they, they fight for small, small farmers and small manufacturers in Washington on currency and trade issues. And and he had brought onto his board, uh, invited onto his board, a, a union um, official from Boeing, uh, the Boeing Engineers Union, because Michael actually had a great deal of, um, kind of admiration for, for Boeing um, before all this happened, because he saw them as really one of the, the few big uh, American manufacturers that was still holding their own um, with rivals around the world and was still kind of a 
you know, what he, what he calls kind of a national champion company um, of the sort that he wished that we had more of. Um, but the fact that Michael's been doing all this lobbying around these economic issues in Washington, of course, put him in an incredibly good position to to take on this new fight. It was uh, remarkable watching him in, on the Hill in Washington. Very, very often he would be shuttling back and forth between meetings with congressmen over aviation issues, fighting for you know to redeem his his daughter's tragic tragic death, and then going in the very next minute going over to have a meeting on trade and currency issues um, at the very same time. And it's just you know incredible to see someone sort of going back and forth like that um, between these these two callings. Right. So we need to back up a little bit and talk about what did happen. And there have been some competing, as I said before, accounts and theories and reporting on what happened. But I think one thing that's clear from your article and a lot of the other stuff that I've read is that I'm trying to think, put it in the simplest terms, but that Boeing had installed a system that would, under certain circumstances, take control of the plane and make it begin to do stuff. Um, and they didn't even mention the existence of this particular system in the operating manual for the plane that was given to pilots. So here's this here's the system that if it gets a certain sensor trigger, it's going to start actually sort of changing the tilt of the plane in the sky. Uh, and it, it the pilots could literally be unaware of what to do about that. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's, it seems hard. It seems, it seems crazy when you, when you describe it like that, but that's actually what happened. Um, not only were the pilots unaware of it, but, um, but as has been revealed in a lot of good reporting by daily aviation reporters in the last few months, the FAA itself, the Federal Aviation Administration, the regulator for, for, for airlines and airline manufacturers was only vaguely aware of of this 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 feature of the plane and 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 was actually kind of startled after after the first crash uh, to learn just what this this actually what this feature actually did and 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 sort of how how little it had been vetted by Boeing. So what it did, as I understand it, is um, it would in response to a, a, the trigger of a sensor telling basically telling the plane or telling the, the software of the plane that the plane was tilted kind of too far up. The nose of the plane was too far up in the sky. The angle of the plane would be approaching a potential stall. This uh, automated system would take over the plane and basically, I, I think, using part of the tail of the plane, um, uh, partly would look, try to le- push the nose down uh, and level the plane off. What seems to have happened in these crashes is that it was falsely triggered and repeatedly falsely triggered so that no matter what the pilots did, the plane kept automatically in an un, you know, unmanned way just pushing its own nose down. That's right. I mean, Michael has referred to it as, you know, with dark, darkly comic um, tone, he, he calls it the first self-hijacking plane in history. Mm. And that's, that's really what was going on here. And one of the most egregious elements of it all was that that initial, the, the there's only one sensor that that would um, that would set this set this whole thing off. There was no redundancy. I mean, one of the basic basic you know rules of of any kind of complex engineering system, especially when there's safety involved, is that you have redundancy. And in this case, there was just this one sensor that would that would start this whole thing going. And if and in both these cases, that one sensor was was uh, was faulty, uh, and and there was nothing else, no other backup to just say, hey, wait a second, this 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 plane is not 
um, approaching a stall. It was nowhere close to that, and and so you, it would get it gets that one mis, misreading, and boom, um, this whole terrible cycle begins. So there's two two changes, historic changes that seem to begin to create almost an augury of what will eventually happen. One of them is within the culture of Boeing, and the other one is within the culture of the FAA. So let's take them in, in that order. Uh, as you write, there was a certain point at which, and it was at the time of the McDonnell-Douglas uh, acquisition, that Boeing's culture appeared to change, that it appeared to stop being a company of engineers, an engineering company that made engineered products and, and therefore uh, made engineers kind of the center of all of its concerns and their concerns, part the, the biggest part of its concerns, and, and to become a little bit more of a typical bottom line, stockholder-oriented corporation. Maybe you can say more. Definitely. I mean, that's um, the, the people I spoke with um, in, in Seattle and elsewhere just described that, that mid-90s merger acquisition of, of McDonnell Douglas as this really key moment where the company becomes much more bottom line minded, much more sort of Wall Street driven, and um, and, and much less um, invested in, in in prioritizing its its legendary engineers, and and the the moment that should have been the real warning sign that this was happening was the the whole debacle around the, another airplane, the, the 787 Dreamliner, which was uh, conceived of in 2003 or four. And then built over the next uh, decade or so, and and had all sorts of problems. Was was very late. Was hugely over budget, and then and then had this really scary problem of of um, a tendency to have battery fires. Batteries would burst into flames on on these planes, and they had to be grounded for several months. And and that should have been a real kind of warning sign that something had gone wrong in in the corporate culture um, at this great at this great company. And in that warning side sign instead was not really heated. And, and so it's, and, and, and so it was left to this even greater tragedy now where you actually had hundreds of deaths um, for, for that real reckoning to happen. Right. There's, um, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but the, there's an interesting little passage in your article where, where I think it's a CEO who says, uh, Boeing says, you engineers act like you're the center of the company. And I think it's the guy that we were talking about before thought, well, we are the center of the company. I mean, we should be the center of the company. This is a company that sells an engineered product. That's what we do. We, If we do our jobs right, we have a superbly engineered product. If people don't do their jobs right, we have an incredibly dangerous product that a lot of people are unknowingly using. Right. Um, no, that's, and that's, that, that was, that was starting way back, way back in the late nineties. And it's just, um, and, and you had people warning about it and worrying about it. And then, and then just incredible to see, to see those warnings, uh, being made real in this, in this awful way. So the, the other thing that you document, and it's something that Ralph Nader in that prescient way that I was describing before, uh, was an early identifier of, and that is a transformation in the understanding of the mission of the FAA, uh, that rather than being kind of what we think it is, a regulatory agency, which probably if it prioritizes anything, would prior prioritize the safety and, and, and responsible operation uh, of commercial 
airline systems uh, so that all of us who use it will, A, get to our destinations alive and, B, not be defrauded uh, or commercially, you know, incommoded. Uh, but it became something else. In some ways, it became an agency almost more concerned about the actual fiscal health of the uh, airline companies it was regulating. That's right. It, it is worth noting that there really has been since the founding of the FAA, this is something that didn't get enough space to get into in the piece, but there's always been kind of a conflict in, in that agency because it was initially founded actually both to make flying safe but also to promote flying. It was it goes way back to the days when when we were just when um, aviation was just starting out and there was a lot of you know, anxiety, obviously anxiety among the, the public about about taking to the skies, and and this agency was really kind of had this dual mission, both of regulating but also of simply promoting the the industry, and and so you still see that kind of conflict all the way down to present day, where where it's it's not it's it's not a, it's never been a pure kind of um, you know regulator in the sense of of just kind of. Uh, you know, keeping tabs on things and, and scolding the, the industry in question. There's always been this, this also this kind of promotional aspect to it. And, and but, but that, that conflict has gotten much more extreme in recent years because of this big shift that happened um, in, in the last decade, actually right around the time that the Dreamliner was, was being conceived in 2004, 2005, there was this push to, to basically um, outsource a lot of the regulation, the safety checks, through the actual manufacturers, and there was a sense that the FAA was their budget was so strapped that it was that it was hard for them to to keep on top of things by themselves with their own inspectors, and it simply made more sense to have to have the manufacturers as long as they were you could trust them if they as long as they reached some basic threshold of trust that they would be allowed that they would have delegated authority um, to to have their own people. Do inspections, whether it was of the design of planes or the actual construction of planes, and and then um, have basically have concerns uh, only reach the FAA if if they were considered really serious, and if and if the managers at the manufacturer at Boeing um, saw fit to to bring these bring something up with, with the FAA. It was it was really a remarkably kind of uh, clear example of, of regulatory capture. You know, for for where you have the the, the regulated uh, company, regulated industry, um, really kind of uh, finding itself uh, basically in charge of the regulator and, 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 and in, a, in a sort of superior position. Uh, and that's and that again that you can just see how that that shift in 2004 2005 led led pretty directly to this tragedy. Right. So uh, uh, at one point you quote a veteran uh, FAA engineer in Seattle who said that because of the way the Boeing office of the FAA was set up by its uh, current leader, uh, there were only a few people assigned to flight controls. Uh, this engineer is quoted as saying there are 44,000 people in the FAA, but we don't have enough people to spend four hours to evaluate the MCAS safety assessment. The MCAS is this thing that we've been talking about, the thing that takes control uh, of the plane uh, if it gets a warning from one single sensor. Uh, so, um, so he's sort of saying the same thing, right? It's not necessarily that uh, the FAA is understaffed and overburdened and there's too much stuff in the pipeline, so much as how you use your people and people weren't being used in that watchdog way. That's right. I mean, th- th- there were choices here. There were choices made that were driven as much by, by a certain kind of ideology 
as they were by, by simple budget concerns. And it's worth noting that the the person who set up the FAA official who set up that Boeing office in Seattle um, with only four people assigned to overseeing flight controls um, was someone who then later went to work as a lobbyist for one of the main um, industry aviation manufacturer industry industry groups and is now back at the FAA. I mean, it's kind of a classic revolving door sort of situation. He's now he's back at the FAA as the FAA's um, director of safety. I mean, he oversees all safety issues at the FAA. This is someone again who just a few years ago was working for the um, this big industry group. Um, so it's, it's just it's just such such a really um, classic case of of coziness between between the regulator and the regulated industry. So, um, and and we're shortchanging this part of your story a little bit. I mean, people should really read the totality of the story. It's it's a hard story to read because it's so tragic, but it's also very gripping, and it's also it affects you if you're planning to get on an airplane anytime uh, in the near future. So. Um, you know, I mean, in a way, the parents, uh, Nadia and Michael, you know, I just did a show not too long ago with Kristen and, Kristen and Michael Song, who are the parents of this young boy, Ethan Song, who shot himself with a, by accident with a gun that was at the house of a friend and was not prop- properly secured. And they've become these very effective civic ad- uh, activists, particularly for that securing of, of firearms, the mandatory securing of firearms and spending time with them. You just realize that this... This is how they're coping with their the incredible, unquenchable grief that they have is at least trying to make a difference, at least trying to build a safety into a world that didn't have it in, in a specific way. Um, now, in a way, this particular family didn't have to learn citizen activism. They already knew citizen activism. But one senses in reading uh, your article that they are – Absolutely, you know the kinds of people who are going to not stop until they make a difference. Absolutely, I mean it's just it's so extraordinarily fateful that that this particular family should have been thrust into this unwanted role because they are just so in- incredibly prepared for it in, in a way that really you, you know it's hard it's hard to think of someone being more better prepared for such a role I and. Mean, even just the fact that they've, and they've, as I mentioned, they've already been through the loss of one child um, years ago, and and so there's just they they have a it's hard to really even describe it that the sort of a strength of a purpose and mission and sense of values kind of that that I think have just stood them in an incredibly strong stead in this really hard moment. So there's just all this. I mean, they're they're in they're in deep grief, and and are just you know are, you often see. You know, it's not hard to find images of them in the last few months in in real distress um, in, in in the public. But they also have a incredible strength to draw on and and amazing energy. I mean, one of the things that struck me when I was following them around Washington on many different visits that they've made down there is just this incredible energy where they're just it, just they just keep going and going and it's just unflagging. And one of the scenes I describe in the piece is Nadia. Being so upset about one of the things that 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 FAA official that I described, the revolving door guy, he, he testified at a hearing um, a few months ago. She was not there, but she heard about what he said, and she was so upset about the sort of blitheness of his comments that she she and her younger son jumped in the car and drove through the night. You know, starting at two in the morning, drove all the way to Washington from Massachusetts, 
and to, to protest outside um, the FAA the next morning. And it's just, yeah, there's, there's, they are absolutely going to be at this for the long haul. They've, they've even found an apartment in Washington to make it easier for them to make frequent visits there. Um, they're just, they're completely all in on this. And, and, and they, I should say that they've been very careful to, very adamant about trying to, making sure that other families get involved too. They, they say, say often that this is not just about them. They've been, they've been trying very hard to, to, to enlist other, and encourage other families from around the world. It's tough because so many of the families are, are scattered around the world, but they've really done a remarkable job of getting others involved and, and making this a team effort. But there's just no question that given their skills and their background, that they're just they're suited to take the lead on this in a way that no one else would be. All right, we have to uh, stop there, but I really do recommend reading the entirety of this piece in The New Yorker. It's by Alec McGillis, uh, who has joined us today. Thanks for giving us your time. Well, thank you, Colin. All right, so we'll take a little break. Uh, we'll, um, I mean, it's we're not going to like veer off into a cheery subject area, but uh, it'll be probably a little less upsetting. We're going to be talking about football, uh, about a, a, an especially disturbing thing, disturbing to see uh, thing that happened on the football field. Also about the journey of Colin Kaepernick. So beginning, in fact, last week, uh, the sports world got very riled up over uh, something that happened in a football game. Football games are inherently violent uh, anyway, uh, but people seem to want a certain kind of violence and they don't want to see other things, which is not entirely unreasonable anyway. Uh, so what uh, people saw was um, uh, the um, uh, the act of tackling a quarterback, uh, the quarterback, uh, Steelers quarterback Mason Rudolph was on the ground. Uh, we later could see that he was seemed to be trying to get the um, the helmet of his tackler, uh, Miles Garrett, off. He was unsuccessful, but then Miles Garrett uh, did the same thing to him and successfully took off his um, his helmet. There was a uh, he took off Rudolph's helmet. There was kind of a melee, and at one point uh, Garrett swung the helmet and kind of bonked. Um, Mason Rudolph on the head. Um, and more than most things that happen on football fields, this uh, seemed to get people very, very fired up. Uh, we're going to talk about that uh, and uh, sort of how much proportional sense that makes. Uh, joining us is uh, Jerry Brewer, a terrific national sports columnist for The Washington Post. He wrote a column uh, kind of exploring, like, maybe how did this happen and, and how should we think about Miles Garrett? Miles Garrett, at least for now, is suspended for the rest of the season and, and any playoffs that might come. He's appealing, I believe, that suspension. So, um, Jerry Brewer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, you know, it feels like in the history of sports, there are these occasional moments where a different kind of violence erupts. Or, I mean, even in a basketball game, we, we like to see players pushing and shoving. We consider that to be kind of, you know, how you get a rebound, how you play aggressively. But then if the, the fight between Kermit Washington and Rudy Tomjanovich or the fight in 72 on the floor between uh, Minnesota and Ohio State, you know, those are really shocking to people. They just not what they wanted to see. And and in football, obviously, where there's all, all the time, you know, people doing things which if I did them to you or you did them to me, we'd really get hurt. Um, it, you know, it's, it, it's always surprising that there's something we, we somehow or other don't want to see. So why did this cross into that category? I think, uh, you know, number one, it's on Thursday night football on a nationally televised broadcast. 
Uh, and it was shocking to our senses from the standpoint of we feel uh, as football fans that there's a certain code that uh, you're not going to, to use a piece of the player's equipment as a weapon against them. And then certainly this is a you know, 275-pound defensive lineman uh, hitting a quarterback uh, who doesn't have a helmet on with mm-hmm. his own helmet. And I think um, there was a level of, of violence to it that bothered us. And I think it also bothered us because we do have this perception that football is controlled violence. And when it gets out of hand, we start to realize that maybe the way we think about the sport is not exactly the truth. Jerry, I think there's another component, too, too, as you point out. I mean, this isn't like the first time somebody hit somebody else with a helmet, even somebody else's bare head with a helmet. It it does happen. Sometimes it happens in training camps. Sometimes it, it happens in games. Um, sometimes it happens to Richie Incognito, which I sort of think is almost kind of defensible. But, um, but so it happens. I wonder if this is also, there are things that because they can be replayed endlessly and shared endlessly on social media, acquire a kind of currency that they wouldn't otherwise have. You know, people who don't even follow football have seen this clip and maybe played it three or four times. Right, exactly. I mean, there is a um, a frightening nature to seeing that because you just don't know exactly what's going to happen um, as he swings that helmet. Uh, it could have been uh, way worse. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because um, we can hear of incidents and we can even see after photos of incidents. I'm thinking about domestic violence involving football players, and we don't make the emotional connection. Yet, if there's a video of a player dragging a woman or hitting a woman, then all of a sudden there is this outrage. And so I think um, we have to uh, intellectually get to a certain level as well. Uh, and, yeah, it's it's unfortunate that, it takes a video replayed over and over and over again for it to enter our psyche that this is absolutely horrible. And uh, there's a lot of other things that we're a lot more willing to forgive because we don't have that vis- shocking visual evidence. Right. We should say Miles Garrett plays for the Browns. Not all of the Browns are successful in keeping their violence on the football field. And so maybe we should just pause. One thing that I think a lot of people watching this video might not know is that Miles Garrett isn't necessarily the first or second or third guy you'd expect to do this, that in some ways he's a different kind uh, of football player. I think you call him a warrior poet. So, so tell us about this guy. Uh, yes, you know, I mean, I started by column saying, you know, athletes who read books can be violent too, you know. <laughs> uh, he's someone who, uh, he recites poetry. Um, he, he is well read on astrophysics. He wants to be a paleontologist when his NFL career is over. Uh, when you talk to him, um, he comes across as, uh, just an incredibly thoughtful, gentle, uh, cerebral human being. And so, uh, that doesn't mean that on the field you can't turn on a switch and go to a dark place and be this aggressive, violent player, but it does make you wonder about the duality of Miles Garrett and how can someone who has it so together in one way off the field be another way on the field. And I would also add that hey, there's been a gradual build up to this with Miles Garrett. He's been 
flagged. He's been uh, fined uh, for for dirty hits, for late hits, for excessive uh, physical play. Um, and so you start to wonder with him, um, was this always within him, or is there just something about playing this game that makes him this way? Because when he entered the NFL uh, as as just the overwhelming number one pick, the one concern was this guy makes a few phenomenal plays a game, but he's too docile the rest of the game. Mm. He needs to get tougher, as we always like to say, with young football players. And so you worry a bit that that perception, you got to get tougher, entered his mind, and he took it to the extreme because he felt like someone was ex- uh, um, was questioning his toughness and his character on the football field. You know, um, uh, getting ready for this and just uh, trying to understand the issue better, I did some uh, other background reading. One thing that I was dis- uh, surprised to discover is sometimes people who are in these incidents wind up conducting their own rapprochements out of sight. For example, the two Minnesota players who were involved in that famous Ohio State uh, brawl, actually two of the kind of offenders in that case, got in touch with Luke Witte, the player who got banged up the most in that case, Years later, they became friends. They sat down and watched the video together over and over, talked about you know what it, what had happened there, made a real attempt to kind of understand it. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a year from now, Miles Garrett uh, and Mason Rudolph go out for a beer or sit down and watch this stuff. Sometimes the way athletes wind up understanding this is different from the way we understand it because we're so estranged from that level of physicality anyway. But I'm just wondering, I mean, is as he protests his suspension uh, from from your point of view does he have a leg to stand on so to speak no i think that's something that your, your agent and, and the nflpa advises and it's almost automatic that you are going to um try to see if you can get your your punishment reduced uh because that's money out of his pocket uh so you're trying to essentially recoup the money uh and then also start the conversation uh, with the NFL and figure out, uh, you know, why they're so upset, get to the whys of why the punishment was so severe, because you're laying a groundwork of, okay, what do I have to do to get back in? I don't think Miles Garrett at all expects that, that this punishment uh, is going to be reduced. And I think this is just him. Uh, you challenge it because uh, that's what you're taught to do in this collectively bargained sport. Uh, and then you're also just trying to, lay the groundwork for you to be reinstated once you've done the rehabilitation that the league wants. So let's quickly switch gears here. I know you've got a, a busy day. I don't want to use up too much of your time. But, I mean, the other NFL story, obviously, that uh, people are obsessing about is that of Colin Kaepernick, three years out of the league. I don't think we need to explain the whole backstory. People probably sort of understand what's unfolded. Suddenly, the NFL offered this odd opportunity for him to work out in front of a bunch of representatives uh, of other teams. I think ultimately maybe 24 uh, different teams were going to send people to this uh, to this workout. Uh, ultimately, also, certain things, certain preconditions laid down by the NFL, certain unwillingnesses on the part of the NFL to guarantee certain aspects even maybe of his physical health uh, made him decide he didn't want to do it their way. Uh, and so he moved it about to a different a facility about an hour away. Way fewer scouts uh, came to this. Uh, they didn't want to drive to the new location for whatever reason. I don't. What are, what are we left to think 
at the end of this weekend. I mean, it's another chapter in this very drawn-out story. Uh, did we get anything out of what happened this weekend? We got nothing out of it other than there's no trust in this relationship, and there's no realistic route for Colin Kaepernick to get back in the NFL. I think in, in, in the eyes of the league, and I'm not saying necessarily that the league is 100% right, but I'll just you know, clue you into their thinking. Um, 25 teams sent scouts to Atlanta to watch him throw. Only seven wound up at that high school in Atlanta to see him. And uh, there, there is this notion that beyond the disagreements between uh, his, his protests during the national anthem and all that, that there is a, a level of, of, of difficulty getting through to Colin Kaepernick. And I think that perception that the NFL has, um, it's only worsened by what happened. Um, you know, he wanted it to be open. Uh, the NFL wanted it to be closed. Um, and, and for it to lead to him just changing the entire venue and, uh, really ruining the weekend of, of scouts of, uh, representatives from 18 teams, you know, only seven got to see him. Uh, that's kind of an egregious error that's going to lead a lot of the teams just to say, you know what, uh, we don't even want to mess with you if it's going to be this kind of drama over you just throwing a football. And uh, that's unfortunate. I think it's deeper than that. Um, but it's unfortunate that uh, at least those 18 teams, I think, have absolutely written them off. Uh, you know, and, and mind you, I mean, this is, this is a scenario in which uh, he really has to prove his way back into the league, prove that it's going to be worth the drama, worth the hype, um, all of that, the, the media scrutiny that comes with it. And knowing how NFL teams function, and once again, um, I don't think that's right if you're asking my opinion, but knowing how they function, uh, this just gets Colin Kaepernick further away from the league than he already was. Right. I mean, I have to say that as a Green Bay Packers fan, I used to hate Colin Kaepernick because the Packers had no answer for Colin Kaepernick. I used to hate Colin Kaepernick because he was so talented and there was nothing my favorite team could do about him. And it does seem like at this point everybody should just admit that it's not about football anymore. I mean that, you know, uh, what your home team, the Washington franchise, I think it was last year, didn't they bring a guy aboard who was like after the, after several quarterbacks had gone down, they brought a guy in who I think had to watch the Madden NFL game just to learn the numbers of the players yeah. he was going to be throwing to. In that environment, you cannot say anymore that it's about Kaepernick's actual football value. Yeah, I think the NFL realizes that um, this is going to be a historical black eye, and they want to do as much as they can to see if they can, can heal it enough so that they can cover it with uh, some mascara or something. Uh, and Colin Kaepernick's eye, I mean, th- th- this is about I have been wronged, and yes, I want back in, but I want back in my way. And uh, I don't think they can just reach common ground. When they're when one is just trying to play a game of perception, and the other one is just so personally damaged that uh, that that he doesn't want to compromise. Right. And so, where where do you find the easy solution where both sides realize that they need each other? I just I don't think there's any common ground, and I think this situation, which supposedly had decent intentions 
made it even worse. All right. Some marriages can't be saved. Jerry Brewer, thanks so much for your expertise. National sports columnist for The Washington Post, Jerry Brewer, has joined us today. Thank you again. All right. So so we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We'll tell you um, a story with a happy ending. We had to be able to come up with one story (laughs) with a happy ending. And we did. Ladies and gentlemen, our national anthem. Call me As possible producers for today's show, we worked out Ira Glass, Peter Sagal, and Alfira Eisenberg. One of them can't jump, one of them is slow, and one of them can't get guests on a Skype connection. I'm not going to get more specific than that. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, who kept her helmet on at all times. The part of Bill Curry was played by Draymond Green. Make sure to tune in and call in on Wednesday night when Colin hosts a rockin' Impeachment Eve special at 7 p.m. And now, back to Colin. Yes, uh, please do uh, think about doing that, about calling in. Uh, all right, so I'm just going to just quietly tell you, Ophira Eisenberg can't jump, okay? That, that was who that was. Uh, all right, so uh, we're back. Uh, we want to tell you at least one story that ends happily, even though it begins a little bit tragically. Um, Andrea Shea is here, a senior arts reporter for WBUR. Uh, Andrea Shea, welcome to our show. Hi, how are you? Good. So usually when we think about Nina Totenberg, we think about having her on public radio explaining some incredibly thorny and complicated uh, case that's in front of the Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court is uh, questioning that case and how they might rule. Uh, Instead, well, we're talking about this. The thief was the person my father always thought it was. A guy named Philip Johnson, who was an aspiring musician. He was not a student of my father's, but I think his ex-girlfriend was. And my dad was just very suspicious of him. What? Thief? Music? What are we talking about here? So, Andrea Shea, uh, help us out here. This is the story, really, of Roma, Roman Totenberg, father uh, of NPR legal affairs correspondent uh, Nina Totenberg. So explain who he was. Well, Roman Totenberg was a child prodigy in Poland uh, back in, you know, the early 1900s. He started playing the violin at age six. He ended up, his family ended up leaving, fleeing fascism in Europe. He went from Poland to Russia to Paris, playing music all along the way. Ultimately ended up in the U.S., uh, playing with major orchestras, played for President Roosevelt at the White House in his 20s. Uh, came to Boston, became a professor at, uh, at Boston University, he, where he actually taught for 50 years. And he had this Stradivarius that his family purchased in the early 1940s. Uh, it had been played by a musician named George Ames in the 1800s, so it's known as the Ames Totenberg Stradivarius, but it was stolen. And this was huge news uh, in 1980. Uh, when he was the head of the Longy School of Music here in Cambridge, and um, he played a recital, stopped to talk to friends. His office had two doors, and when he went back into his office, he couldn't find the case. Ultimately found the case that there was no violin in there, and as Nina Totenberg told me when she recounted, recounted the story, which she's done many times since 1980, uh, her father's dance partner of 38 years was gone. Right. And we should explain, or maybe most people can intuit this, but um, 
uh, these kinds of musical instruments, uh, it's not just a matter of the best cellist getting the best cello or the best violinist getting the best violin. They have to sort of go together. The person and the instrument have to, it's like Match.com or something. You've, you've got to, you know, have a kind of love affair between the two of you. So uh, one really great violinist might not be able to get the same results out of a terrific violin that another violinist might be able to get. So it is important who your dance partner uh, is. So yeah. um, just her Hurdling forward, uh, Andrea, what actually happened was that the man in question, the man that I think we heard Nina Tottenberg talking about in that clip, um, died rather young from cancer. And what? His ex-wife moved back in to care for him and take care of his belongings and stuff. And, and she found the violin. Yes. After he died uh, a few years later, uh, according to Nina, um, Philip Johnson died and his ex-wife was going through his home, found a locked box or case. And this is, you know, 20, what would this be, about 2011, I think he died, uh, found a locked box and inside it was a violin with a label, Cremona, Italy, 1734. And Cremona, Italy is where the Stradivariuses were created by Antonio Stradivarius and his family and their, their, their primo. They are like they are considered the best violins in the world. Um, so she took it. The the ex-wife took it, knew, recognized that it was something special. Uh, took it to an appraiser, and uh, after <laughs> not too long, because you can't resell these on the market. There is only about six hundred said surviving Stradivarius violins on the planet. So the appraiser, after looking at it, said, we have good news and bad news. It's indeed a Stradivarius, but there's a really good chance that it's Roman Totenberg stolen Stradivarius. Right. So, and this uh, is this is a musical instrument that the FBI has been looking for. You know, it's not even the kind of thing where you can just hand back over. It's got to go through some procedures. It, yeah. I, I guess Andrea it winds up uh, at one point. It's in sort of the possession of some dealers in in rare violins, and suddenly this person whose identity we do not know may never know comes forward with this idea. They, they call him uh, an, an angel. Because uh, the question is, who, like, who's going to buy this thing? I mean, who, who, can, who can even pay the amount of money that would be required to, 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 to give proper value? This guy has another idea. What's the idea? Well, um, million, I mean, they're, yes, these are multi-million dollar instruments. Uh, you know, the Totenberg sisters, so Nina and her sisters, once it came back into their, once it was recovered, they wanted it, obviously. They wrote a check for like $100,000, according to Nina, to pay for the insurance. Uh, on the violin, but then they they didn't want to sell it to a collector. They didn't want it to just sit in a box or in a glass case in a museum or something like that. They wanted it to be played in the great concert halls where their dad played. So, and they also needed to be able to match uh, this particular Strad that was very large comparatively, so a larger person would have to play it, and they have different sounds and different pitches that come out of them. Um, So they wanted to find this right match, and the company that her father had dealt with before, Rare Violins of New York, where he actually got his replacement, uh, Guaneri, which is another famous um, violin maker, uh, they... um, they also restored the recovered Stradivarius. So that's the shop that, you know, they're trying to match and find the right buyer that's going to fulfill all the things the Totenberg sisters want. Uh, That's when this angel 
offered to purchase it on condition that they create a consortium of fine stringed instruments that would be loaned long term to you know accomplished aspiring players who couldn't afford them otherwise. And ultimately, they found a, a six foot three guy <laughs> named Nathan Meltzer. And the Strat fit him, and Nina said his romantic style of playing reminded her so much of her father's. It was eerie. And, and there you go. The, the Strat is now in the hands of a, a 19-year-old Juilliard student. Yeah, it's such a great idea to have this consortium that these exquisite and expensive instruments, I mean, they couldn't be afforded uh, probably at all by somebody who's 19 years old, a student at Juilliard, but, but he can have it. He can have it for a while. Uh, yeah, he and, has to pay the insurance, though, so right. it's not as if it's a freebie. No, nothing's <laughs> free in this world. So let's just end with this. I mean, I really recommend that people go to BUR and um, check out uh, Andrea Shea's terrific reporting on this because uh, we're just kind of scratching the surface a little bit. Uh, but uh, eventually, the violin came home from the plate to the place it used to live and the place that it was actually stolen from. Too Nathan Meltzer brought it home for a homecoming performance at the Longy School of Music in Cambridge, um, and uh, we're going to just play out with, in fact, him playing that violin. I'm not sure you can really realize all of the incredible sonic qualities of a Stradivarius this way. Just to go, have to go to. Nathan Nathan Meltzer's next concert. Thank you, Andrea. You're welcome. Have a great day.